I'm a card-carrying Bayesian at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy and be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. Your crash course in the major themes from our two-hour show, which airs on Wednesday mornings, 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock in the morning on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host of the podcast, Professor Adi Weiner of the Department of Statistics in the Wharton School of Business of the University of Pennsylvania. And on Wednesdays, I'm joined with my colleagues, Kate Massey, Eric Bradlow, and Shane Jensen. This past week in the studio featured Cade and Shane and Eric, but I was not there. I'm happy to be your podcast host. So, This past week's show had two terrific guests, our usual repeating guest, Rick Peterson, who joins us every other week during the baseball season. And our other guests were professors, Vittorio Adono, a associate professor of mathematics, statistics, and computer science from McAllister College, and Julian Wolfson, who's an assistant professor in the Division of Biostatistics at the University of Minnesota at the School of Public Health. Rick, of course, was talking about baseball, and the professors were talking about football analytics. So let's go to our first clip from Rick Peterson. And uh, Rick Peterson is a great, great uh, guest, and he actually has a new book called Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. And he's going to tell us a little bit about Noah Syndergaard's fastball. How do you keep these guys healthy? I know this was a big part of your life for years, and, and we, you know, we know from talking to you over the last three years that you're always prioritizing the health of the pitcher. There was a recent piece in the Wall Street Journal by our buddy Mike Salfino, and he did a small piece on Syndergaard, and the, the observation on Syndergaard was, look, this guy's got the fastest fastball in the majors. Average of 98. Average of 98 over the last two years. And basically, you know, there are a few guys in that territory, and they're all getting hurt. What are the chances that he can keep throwing at that speed, which is almost untouchable, and stay healthy? Well, yeah, you question it. And, and the other thing that's interesting about Syndergaard is that his perceived velocity is high as well. So perceived velocity, what, what that literally means is it's a track man measurement that they measure when the ball comes out of your hand, how far are you in front of the rubber, your extension. And so the average in a big league is just over six feet, which means that the ball is traveling 54 feet to get the home plate. Syndergaard, because of his size and his you know reach or however you want to say it, his limb, the length of his, his arms, and also he's, what is he, 6'6", six, 6'7", six, 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 that when the ball comes out of Syndergaard's hand, he's he's about seven and a half feet from home plate, or, or from the pitching rubber, which means his fastball is only traveling 52 and a half feet. Wow. So his perceived, or per, his perceived velocity is two miles an hour faster than what his actual velocity is. So his average 98 is, is perceived to the hitter as 100. So what, what you get concerned about, especially if he's a max effort guy, and he has talked about that quite openly, that, that he puts everything into every pitch. And when you were talking about Sandy Koufax, we actually, that's one of our chapters in Crunch Time. It's talking about try easy and that whole effort of, of backing off just a little bit. Well, Cade began with a question about forecasting whether or not a hard thrower like Syndergaard could survive a season without getting injured. He did last year. 
And Eric chimed in by remarking that Syndergaard throws the fastest average velocity of any starting pitcher, 98 miles an hour. And Rick then took a little bit of a detour to point out that that's two miles per hour faster because of his extremely long release point closer to to home plate. At the very end, Rick kind of turned back to the original question, which is, Syndergaard is a try-hard every time pitcher, throws as hard as he can, and they don't quite have the longevity as someone like Koufax, who remarked that you should try easy, and that you just pull back a little bit, you might lose a little bit on velocity, but not enough to really matter, and you are able to pitch longer, not exactly as if Koufax had an incredibly long career, his arm was essentially history, but this was before the, the surgery, the Tommy John surgery that allows careers to be lengthened. But at the time of this recording, Syndergaard was pitching well, as the time of my post-game podcast, Syndergaard is out. He has sustained an injury to his lat muscle, and he'll be out for what said six to eight weeks. Uh, Rick Peterson, when we circled back to talk to him about this particular issue, he said, no, it's probably going to be even longer than that. So much for trying easy didn't really work out for Syndergaard. And that just seems to be the course for all these major league pitchers. So let's go on to another clip from Rick, who's talking about baseball and left-handed pitchers in Fenway Park. Rick, there's a, we were just talking about the Salfino article in the journal. There was another one recently about about uh, left-handed pitchers in Fenway. They've got, I don't know, a century of history of guys just having a hard time getting it done. They've got to go against righties with that with the green monster just right behind them. They quoted, I forget which pitcher it was, but they quoted a pitcher saying it's like pitching in a in a phone booth. What 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 is your experience taking pitchers into into Fenway, or what are you, what do you hear talking to guys about that? Well, you know, we had Mulder and Hudson, you know, that, that when we would come into Fenway, and I think two things. Number one, the sinker ball pitchers, um, you know, those those are the guys that fare much better because they're because they're ground ball guys, right? You know, and when you look at when you look at sabermetrically, it's the guys with low spin rates. So if you have a lower spin rate on your fastball, you hear people talk about spin rates. The lower spin rates are guys that have that have more more sink. And then they'll get more ground balls. Is that so partly balls, because a, a high 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 spinning ball will rise? A, a fastball with a lot of spin will rise. No, not necessarily rise. It just won't. Gravity won't affect. Oh, it, it won't. As much. It won't go down as much. Right, right, right. We we it's it feels so, like it's, it's perceived as a rise, but it's actually just not falling. Got it. You're exactly right. Two things that fare well are the sinker ball guys because if the ball hits the ground and goes out, it's only two bases. <laughs> so, and the other guys that fare well are guys that pitch inside against righties. Mm-hmm. And Zito had Zito had that late cut on his fastball that really bore in on righties, you know. So, you know, those two styles of pitching will will, will fare fair, fairly well. But but there's a lot of left hand pitchers that have what they call that late tail yep. that riding. Well, that riding tail seems to like it goes a long way over the green monster. Well, there's a, a lot of interesting little statistical tidbits about pitching. Um, Spin rates, when they're low, they, of course, lead to, I shouldn't say of course, those are the basically the Provence of a sinker ball pitcher. And that's where you have to be in Fenway Park. If you're a left-handed pitcher pitching to a predominantly righty line, lineup, which is what the managers will stack in Fenway, you're going to have a really hard time. And the only ones who have any possibility of, of any success are the sinker ball or pitchers. Um, and that probably plays out over the years. So we'll probably return to that question later. We're going to switch gears and now talk a little bit about football with our other two guests, Vittorio Adana and Julian Wolfson. The, the biggest 
thing that we noticed was that when when people went and started to look at uh, player performance based on uh, based on college statistics, for example, uh, what they were doing is they were saying, well, what do we do with the people who have never played? Um, in an NFL game. So people who were drafted and just just never show up on the stat sheet at the professional level. And a lot of the uh, previous analyses that had been done, because people didn't accumulate any statistics, just discarded those people. And so the problem with discarding those people is you're essentially assuming that those people look like the people who were drafted around the same place who did actually get to play. And we sort of thought that seemed like a questionable assumption, given sure. that presumably the coaches have some input in who gets to play and who doesn't, and that's derived to some degree on their performance maybe in practice. So that was really the thing that we were trying to address. I'll just jump in and then Julian Great. can add on. The one paper that we that sort of caught my eye, and I think Julian's eye, was, was a paper that actually concluded that draft position wasn't related to quarterback success. And at least for for me, you know, when you, when you hear that kind of conclusion, that really makes you stop and, and look at what they did. I mean, um, prima facie, that has to be wrong. I mean, the, we, we, we know that has to be wrong. Great. So what did, what did you find when you, when you dug into it? Right, right. So, it, again, it's the kind of eye-popping conclusion that, you know, you want to look at. And, and so this paper sort of, it did a good job of contrasting sort of different ways of measuring success, sort of one based on what I guess they call cumulative measures. So, you know, I mean, you could think of it as simply number of touchdown passes, number of, you know, passing yards, and then there's more sophisticated ones that are kind of composite metric, quarterback score, or something that kind of combines all these things. Right. And then comparing that with, with per-play metrics, and the goal of per-play metrics, of course, is to acknowledge the fact that you might not have a lot of cumulative, you know, a, lo- a large cumulative value simply because you didn't get to play very much. Right. And they're trying to even out that field. Right. Uh, and depending on whether you use these cumulative metrics or per-play metrics, you get very different conclusions about whether success is related to draft position. And so then the, what the argument boils down to is do you believe that people are accumulating statistics because they're simply given opportunities kind of at random, or not, not necessarily at random, but perhaps based on their big contract or sure. uh, where they were drafted, or are they being awarded these opportunities because they're actually better than the players who are not given those opportunities? Tough, tough to part. Really interesting clip. Let me try to break it down a little bit. When you're trying, the, the, the background here is we're trying to forecast the connection between draft order and future success. And the first part of the discussion featured a distinction made between a data set that accounts for individuals who never played a day in the professional arena and those who did. And it's very a common mistake is to simply try to look at those who who were drafted and how they eventually played by just eliminating anyone who never played at all. And that actually is a, is a bias that um, has to be accounted for. And if you don't somehow deal with the fact that there are individuals who never play at all and they have to be included, you can get it with a very biased result. And that was their first observation. Their second one, which is far more, I think, more subtle and almost, and I actually want to do some research on this topic myself, asks the question, how do you even measure success? Do you do that on a per-play basis or do you do it on cumulative statistics? And the the problem is, of course, that cumulative statistics will get better with more playing time, and playing time might be causal given performance. In other words, better performers might play longer, or it could be that if you invested heavily in a, in a player, play, paid them a lot of money, draft them high, that will force them 
to get more playing time because you want to you want to give your investments the opportunity to develop. In which case, the draft position and future performance will be highly correlated, but not because of performance, but because of essentially an investment. You paid a lot of money for a player, you drafted them higher. We want to give them the opportunity, and they will then develop high cumulative stats, and then they'll look better than those who didn't get high cumulative stats, but for the wrong reason. And that's what makes this a very complicated issue because you want to use cumulative because somehow playing time is important, but you don't want to use too much cumulative because then you'll you'll miss out on players who, who played very well but over a shorter period of time. And that just le- leaves a big, big open uh, gaping hole for, for a good scientist, data scientist to, to potentially fill. And I think we'll see developments in this capacity over time. So that was a nice explanation of what these professors are kind of up to. Let's go to a final clip from Vittorio Adona and Julian Wolfson. So obviously, you know, once we uh, once they're in the NFL, we've got a bunch of summary statistics that we can compute about them um, in terms of their 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 passer ratings and, and all that kind of stuff. But he went back and and dug in to get a lot of their college statistics. So things like number of games played, um, you know, passing yards, touchdowns, fumbles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then we also, to the extent that we could, um, got as many combine uh, measurements um, as we could on, on these players. Now, going back into the early 2000s, late 90s, it's not very easy to get good combine data, good combine performance data on these uh, on, on these folks. But we did we did as much as we could. Um, so that's kind of the the data set that we operated from. You know, we had kind of pre-professional statistics at the college level. And then we had uh, professional performance statistics. So how big a sample are we talking about at the end? But 15 years, you're only looking at one position. So it's a popular position, but there's only one of them on the field. How many guys you have in the set at the end? Uh, we have uh, about 200 quarterbacks in our sample. Okay. Yeah, about 210. Okay. And, and including some of those who, as you said, don't ever show up with performance statistics in the NFL. I think, I think it's about, yeah, 20, 20 to 25% of quarterbacks never play. It's a, it's a higher number for quarterbacks than it is for other players. Right. Okay, so that's an interesting sort of breakdown. The data collection was all about quarterbacks. There were 210 of them that they were able to collect draft information on, and they also supplemented it with college combine information when possible. About 25% of the quarterbacks that they studied had never played even a down in the NBA, in the NFL. Um, 75% did. And that, I guess, um, they were about to try to contrast that with other positions and said that that was a bit, um, I don't remember whether they said a bit higher or lower, but bottom line, it was uh, it was 25% for quarterbacks. And that's an interesting um piece of work, and I'm sure this is a topic that will be pursued continuously as more and more interest and money gets spent on uh, on NFL players, college players, and this is, of course, we just completed a, a draft here in Philadelphia that brought hundreds of thousands of people out. It's big business. So, that completes another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner, and it's been a great uh, 20 minutes or so with you guys. You can listen to the full show. It's on podcast. uh, Sorry, it's on iTunes, and it is also on SoundCloud. And, of course, it plays live Wednesday mornings from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM 111. And it is also replayed throughout the week at various times. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball postgame podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your statistics. (laughs) 